0: This is the Future of Food. I'm Lee Schneider. This season was all about how restaurants can survive during these pandemic times. We started with Sean Lynch, the co-creator of a platform called Dining at a Distance. It started as a service that listed restaurants in the Chicago area that did food for takeout and quickly grew to a worldwide platform listing thousands of restaurants.
1: My wife and I were just exploring who was actually open for takeout and delivery because, as we all know, not every restaurant was or had been in the past. So I went to Twitter and I saw a thread from a local reporter where there, where there were about 200 responses to it indicating who's opened and who's closed. And it was interesting. There was a lot of information. Um, my background's in product um, strategy and experience design, and I recognized that this wasn't necessarily a really great experience for people to get this information, and they needed a consolidated hub or a source for it.
0: That hub became dining at a distance, one solution that helped many a restaurant stay open. Then came the lockdowns, and the reopenings, and the lockdowns again. People got pretty confused about the rules. It fell to servers, the folks who in normal times would be recommending wine or a side dish, to advise on masks and social distancing. Do you find yourself explaining the rules? A lot? Every
2: day. Every shift. Every day. I'm always explaining the rules to people. And I feel bad because I know people, for the most part, are really good intentioned.
0: Grace Goober works as a server and is the host and producer of a podcast called The Family Meal. She covers stories about the restaurant industry and COVID-19.
2: I know that they're trying to be aware and conscious of what we're doing, But there's something about going to a restaurant and sort of returning to normal life that people just wipe their brain about COVID. Like, I always say that my job description has never entailed preventing the spread of infectious diseases. Like, that's, I'm not trained to do that. I'm trained to carry three plates on my arms and to get you cocktails and recommend wines for you. That's my job.
0: Running a restaurant and keeping it profitable can be challenging. I heard how challenging firsthand when I interviewed Lex Gopnik Lewinsky, owner of a deli in Berkeley, California.
3: Our whole business model is based on how many times we can turn the table over. That's the entire financials of opening any restaurant is you got X number of tables, you have X number of people you can fit into your space. How many times can you turn that table over in a given day? I remember when this first started, we had a lot of customers like, really want to support you. And, and it's been great to see this outpouring of support. And I think a lot of small businesses and restaurants are are feeling that love. We're feeling that appreciation from customers. Like, we want you to be around when this ends. And, you know, we put you on a rotation for coming in to buy it, or we put you on our caviar or Grubhub rotation.
0: We all want to support our local eateries. They can be the heart and soul of our neighborhoods. But it really matters how you do it, as Lex explained. If you order direct from the restaurant, they realize more profit. If you order using an app, they get less money.
3: And I had to educate some of my customers, say, hey, that's great, right on for the love. But you need to understand how these apps work as well. Not only understand the economics, how a restaurant works, but the apps take between 30 to 15% of every single order that they place with you.
0: In the next episode, we took a step back to look at the supply chain with Craig Fielding, CEO of Fusionware, an app that tracks produce from farm to packer to shipper. I was surprised to learn that not everything harvested was rushed to the supermarket. In fact, some of it went into storage for eight months or more.
2: Over the past six, eight weeks, everything that's been being harvested has gone straight into consumer packs, and right to us, the consumer. But the balance of that is going into massive storages or into into smaller bins of storages. And they will take those with temperature and humidity and literally put those commodities to sleep. And they'll go dormant and they'll sit there for six months, eight
0: months. During the pandemic, supply and demand shifted a lot. With restaurants suddenly closed, the tables turned. It was just you and me, everyday consumers, who needed food to cook all by ourselves.
2: Typically, it's a 70 30 split. And by that, I mean most of our customers, the Grow Pack ship, 70% of these goods are typically going into restaurants.
0: Shippers were set up to send their goods to distributors. Think of them shipping 100 cases of 100 eggs. But what supermarkets needed was not a crate of a hundred eggs, but just a dozen eggs ready for you to make breakfast. The shippers weren't ready to ship eggs or anything else in small quantities, and that's why your supermarket shelves emptied out. It's still that way today with supplies for certain goods pretty scarce. They didn't have
2: the packaging for it, their equipment. They just didn't have the throughput with the way that they have designed their warehouses to handle that immediate shift from a 70-30 to a 30-70.
0: We continued on the techie path with the next episode. Brian Wang, who runs the science website nextbigfuture.com, brought some perspective on plant-based meat and other tech solutions.
3: I've tried the um, Impossible Burger and, and the um, Beyond Meat and those kind of things, and they taste, taste and texture very much more like meat. If you were to... Give someone that hamburger, you know, just like a Pepsi Coke taste test, they might not be able to tell. Although I've had other people tell me they can detect an aftertaste and they, and not quite there.
0: Mm. And finally, in the last episode of season three, Atul Sood, chief business officer at Kitchen United, explained what ghost kitchens are all about.
1: We've been helping co-create this path with restaurants for the last three and a half years. So when we launched the business, nobody knew what a ghost kitchen was, and we had to call into restaurants and kind of explain the whole concept to them. And now it's kind of reversed where, particularly uh, due to the pandemic, restaurants are are, are calling us and saying, hey, this seems like a really great way to approach expansion. Can you help us think through this?
0: There's long been a class system in restaurants. There's the very high-end white tablecloth place, there's the nice place where you go on a date. There's the fast casual, maybe the drive through and maybe things that blur all of those categories. I asked Atul what the ghost kitchen was doing to that stratified approach to restaurants.
1: You know, I think there will always be times and places for each of those types of restaurants to succeed, first of all. I think what it's doing is it's, it's enabling restaurants that might have thought of themselves only in one cuisine type or one, one bucket to recognize that they can be in a bucket that caters towards what we call the off-premise diner, which is somebody who's going to take the food to go and eat at home or in their office or in the park, really giving restaurants the flexibility to to try out a different option. We will see hundreds of ghost kitchens dotted all across the country from smaller neighborhoods to larger towns and cities that enable this model of getting food proximate and close to an end-consumer And being able to deliver it quickly.
0: Thanks for listening to season three of The Future of Food. A podcast is nothing without its listeners. I know you have many choices when it comes to where you place your attention, and I'm grateful for your support. Next, we're going to take a break to work on season four. We're changing the name of the podcast to The Future of Food Justice. We're going to be addressing racism, diversity, and social justice in food. We'll bring you stories about the cultural appropriation of food and ask, who writes culinary history? It's an ambitious development slate, and I have a great team helping bring Season 4 to life. I look forward to producing it for you. The Future of Food podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and all your favorite podcast platforms. If you like this episode, give us some stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us build our audience and make the podcast successful. The Future of Food is part of the FutureX Network. I'm Lee Schneider.